Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 185, The Americans Get Their Act Together. Getting back to the series of the war off the American East Coast, Admiral Carl Donitz went through his mental ledger. Yes, he had lost two subs so far, as opposed to the dozens that the American officials were claiming. However, on the bright side, the tonnage of enemy ships that had been sunk by his U-boats had been rising since the opening of 1942. It was now May, and the Admiral's arsenal was about to get a boost. Longer-range subs that would hopefully cripple the Americans' effort to feed and supply those who opposed Nazi Germany in Europe and Africa were coming online. To be sure, Donitz had received reports from his various sub-commanders that the Americans had increased their defensive measures along the East Coast, but he still thought little of their organization, their firepower, and nerve, and all these combined to make the sum total of their fighting efficiency. Again, he was not impressed, and he told his sub-commanders not to be either. No, what excited the Admiral, despite the desperate Americans raising their game, was the new Type 14 Milkoon boats, which could operate for a longer period than his current boats. Indeed, this extended range would allow the Germans to now threaten vessels near the opening of the Mississippi River, the Panama Canal, and the port cities of northern South America that loaded oil onto ships. But the good news for Donitz did not stop there. In mid-May, three subs of another type came out. A vessel that was specifically designed to transport and release mines in the enemy's operating waters. As such, U-boats U-87, 373, and 701 were ordered to make for Boston Harbor, the Delaware Bay, and the Chesapeake Bay to mine the exit routes. As this was something that Berlin had wanted to do since Pearl Harbor, there was much excitement tied to the slowing down the New World's ability to assist Europe. But a good leader, or in this case a good spy, knows to build other successes on the first one. As such, Operation Pastorius, the sending of Nazi spies to sabotage American economic interests, was about to get underway. U-boats 202 and 584 were to carry the eight agents to the American shores to get started in May. However, a good spy, and this was being organized by Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, chief of the German Abwehr, the military intelligence service, also knew that operations needed to grow in size and impact. Thus, the orders to the eight agents, some of whom had lived in America, in part read, to stir up discontent and lower fighting resistance, to recruit fresh forces for these duties, to re-establish disconnected communications, and to obtain information. Admiral Donitz, who had only known success for the last few months, expected Operation Pastorius, named after Francis Daniel Pastorius, the leader of the first organized settlement of Germans in America, to be just as successful as his first operation of sending subs off the North Carolina coast. And if that was the case, then Pastorius was only the beginning of what was being planned. However, the Germans did not have everything go their way in their indirect war with America. Now that it was bordering on summer, 
the days were longer, and the high-pressure systems tended to keep the Atlantic's surface relatively calm. Hence, the subs had fewer hours each day to safely operate on the surface without fear of being spotted. And a sub that could not rise to the surface for fear of air or sea patrols could not run its diesel engines and thus charge its batteries or gather oxygen. Indeed, the sub-commanders during the early summer would complain to Donitz about this very situation. Not that much could be done about the weather. And then there was another shift that was out of the Nazis' control, one that should have been anticipated, but was not. When the U-boat patrols returned to the East Coast for their second patrol, the captains, looking through their periscopes, noticed a difference from last time. Rather, they saw and then sensed that difference. Off the North Carolina coast and to the north, the shoreline was a lot darker than before. Clearly, the citizens were taking blackout orders more serious, and the sub-crews would soon find out that the merchant captains were doing the same. Hence, on moonless nights, with no lights coming from the ships or the shoreline, spotting target vessels became a lot harder. This, combined with the fewer hours of cruising on the surface, made the gay times of filling up their logs with the names of wrecked ships a thing of the past. Oh, the subs would still have successes, but only history would know that the great hunting days were about to come to an end. As for the more disciplined American civilians dousing their lights, there was an exception. There is always an exception. In this case, it was Florida. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the various clubs and hangouts did not let the war dampen their enthusiasm or lights. In other words, it was Florida being Florida. Another change the Americans made was noticed by Captain Lieutenant Gunther Kretsch, commander of U-Boat 558. After refueling in the Bermuda area, U-Boat 558 was off the North Carolina coast. Gunther would report to Donitz that, upon arrival, he spotted four oil tankers and three steamers right away. In the recent past, the sub-captain would have not hesitated to set a solution, or multiple solutions, and fire, adding to his list of kills. However, here and now, on May 9th, these tankers and steamers were being escorted by a Coast Guard cutter and two gunboats. Still, Gunther was about to take his chances. The enemy vessels had not spotted him yet when they sailed into the Gulf Stream fog. This fog is generated when the warm waters of the Gulf Stream meet the cold winds of the Labrador Current. Yes, the Allied ships were doing this for general safety, but what they did not realize was that this decision probably saved many lives. After learning of this, Donitz would write down, This is the first convoy to be sighted off the American coast. These are probably convoys that only round the dangerous area around Hatteras and then disperse again. But time would show that Donitz was wrong on both accounts. First, they were not technically a convoy, but rather one of Admiral Andrew's bucket brigades, that is, an assembled groups of ships with escorts that traveled from point to point. Indeed, the first convoy was coming, but this was not it. Second, these ships would be escorted all the way to New York, not just past the killing grounds of Hatteras, 
And connected to all this, naval authorities now demanded that all such groups of ships depart areas to the north and south of Hatteras as to be able to completely sail past it during daylight hours. Slowly, the Americans were getting their act together. And this process was appreciated by Admiral King, FDR, Admiral Andrews, and General George Marshall, Chief of Staff, U.S. Army. Ironically, Marshall wrote to Admiral King in June the following, The losses by submarines off our Atlantic seaboard and in the Caribbean now threaten our entire war effort. I am fearful that another month or two of this will so cripple our means of transport we will be unable to bring sufficient men and planes to bear against the enemy in the critical theaters to exercise a determining influence on the war. Marshall believed in spelling things out. The irony comes in that the lowering of the German threat, not unlike inflation, is not noticeable until after it has passed. When this communique went out in June, the American shield, in its many forms, was already showing positive results. No, the first real convoy was on May 14, 1942, which departed from Hampton Roads, Virginia. It was the first coastal convoy of the war, and hopefully the beginning of fewer lost ships. These 19 ships, labeled KS-500, owned by five different countries, would go from Virginia to Key West, Florida. The good news was that all 19 ships reached Florida safely. However, the two largest ships, a tanker and a whale factory ship, would be lost by those same nearby U-boats four months later. The next day, May 15th, several ships left Key West, Florida, making their way to Norfolk, Virginia, and all would arrive safely. And this would become the norm, which greatly affected the larger war effort. For the rest of 1942, 165 convoys would make a safe trip along the American East Coast. Normally, 22 ships would be in each convoy, protected by six warships, be they U.S. destroyers, British armed trawlers, Coast Guard cutters, or the 83-foot-long patrol boats. To be sure, nothing is perfect. For the second half of the year, three Allied merchant ships were sunk and one damaged. Basically, the British Royal Navy had been right again, and it burned Admiral King to admit it. But being of that high of a rank, he knew how to play the game. Even going so far as to tell General George Marshall, escorts are the only way that gives any promise of success, as if he had not been fighting its implementation for the last few months. Admiral Ernest J. King normally a brilliant, driven, detached thinker, missed the boat, if you will, on convoys. Fortunately, the situation was so bad, he had no choice but to try it. Here were the immediate results. Off the North Carolina coast, by April, 24 Allied ships were sunk and 274 people had been killed. The next month, May, four ships were sunk with a loss of 120 people. In June, 10 ships were lost, but only 12 people died. Considering what it took to train a merchantman, this was indeed an improvement in efficiency. Admiral King was happy enough to get on board the convoy system, as it clearly worked, 
but there was more to it than just grouping ships and putting them with escorts. Not that King would have wanted to dive into the details, but there was more to the success against German U-boats than just a pooling of resources. As touched upon previously, after Pearl Harbor, well, even before that, but certainly post the attack, American factories were gearing up to produce war goods. The country was far away from being ready for war in Europe, much less a two-front war. This was the same conundrum that Hitler was in, but the U.S. had two large oceans on either side to give it time. Anyway, with more planes coming online and put into the hands of pilots, these aircraft, bombers and depth-charging craft, could travel relatively quickly compared to the sub, and the subs had practically no way to engage the said aircraft. Indeed, there were some in the U.S. Navy, no names given here, that still insisted that the destroyer was the best weapon against enemy subs. Time brings progress, but the appreciation of that progress is normally a much slower process. Even more, as time went on, those same sub-hunting planes were able to fly for longer periods, extending their patrol or attack range. By mid-1942, the Germans' home ports in France could be bombed directly by American and British planes. Hence, it was soon not safe for German subs to enter or exit their berths. President Wilson's killing the nests metaphor, rather than the hornets, was finally coming true. But the process that would end with the Americans dominating their coastal waters was a hard one. And during that transition phase, the two opponents went back and forth, scoring hits while receiving them. But instead of bruises, people were dying, supplies were lost, and ships were going down. Mentioned previously, Operation Pastorius, which will be covered in detail later, was an outright failure. As such, nothing like it would be tried again until 1944, when Berlin was getting desperate. Another failure, but less staggering, was Donitz's idea of placing mines outside the various major port cities. Again, as this plan did not work as well as Donitz had wanted it to, it would not be tried again for a while until after desperation set in. The mines put down by U-87 near Boston sank zero ships. However, U-87 did come across and sink two ships off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Another U-boat, U-373, laid down mines close to Delaware Bay, which sank a steam tug. Ten Allied crewmen died. But then came Donitz's most successful part of these mine-laying subs. Near the northeast corner of Virginia Beach, Virginia, U-701 had laid its mines. Unfortunately for the Allies, a small convoy was heading through those very waters on June 15th. Northbound, the destroyer USS Bainbridge struck one of the mines, shaking the ship from stem to stern. But by then, it was too late. The convoy was within the midst of the minefield. Before any evasive actions could be taken, a British trawler was torn apart by one of the mines. It quickly sank beneath the waves. Then two tankers were damaged, but managed to stay afloat. As this was near Virginia Beach, 
the largest city in the state, there were many vacationers on the sands at the time, and they saw everything, which brought the war home to them, just in case they had not realized the seriousness of the situation before. Right after the ships left the area, the Navy came in to sweep for mines, and retrieved most of them, but not all. Two days later, in the same area, the coal freighter Santore was hit and went down. Not quite done, after laying those mines near Virginia Beach, U-701 went south for Cape Hatteras. There, it was truly the scourge of the area, using its deck guns to sink an American anti-submarine trawler, YP-389, but then switched to torpedoes when it came upon the 14,000-ton tanker, William Rockefeller. Before leaving the area, two other ships were damaged by the sub. As U-701 was heading home, the crew enjoyed their numbers. Nine ships had been damaged or sunk, totaling about 60,000 tons. Indeed, the 28-year-old captain, Horst Deegan, could already see the medals and citations that he and his would receive when they made it back to France. However, before their departure, one might wonder if they were hunting off Cape Hatteras or the Bermuda Triangle. As U-701 sunk or damaged Allied shipping, they had their own issues. The glass covers on instruments would break, or interior lights would go out. All this was fixable, but not when the air scrubbing systems were damaged, and not by combat. That could only be fixed at home. But Captain Horst Deegan and his crew were enjoying good hunting, and did not want it to stop. Yet, there was a price to be paid for these successes. As stated, the Americans were bringing more sub-patrolling and sub-attacking aircraft online. So while U-701 was near Hatteras, it was bombed and strafed by patrol craft, which led to some of the damages. But again, most of these could be fixed, but not the air scrubbing system that removed carbon dioxide from the air inside the sub. Still, as long as they vented regularly, all would be well and the hunt could continue. But this is where the upbeat of U.S. air patrols comes into play. Because of the increased threat from above, U-701 could not come to the surface as often as needed. Indeed, the sub was forced to stay under longer than desired. Soon the crew was reporting to Deegan that they were not feeling well, with headaches and nausea. By July 7th, there was nothing for it. Commander Deegan knew he had to refresh the air in the sub. However, because of their desire to hunt, they were close to Cape Hatteras, and that also meant they were close to convoys with their escorts, random patrols, and of course, the deadly enemy above, ready to drop death charges. With the stakes being so high, Captain Deegan chose to be in charge of the watch at this moment. Also helping with the watch were three other men. Deegan knew and trusted two of them, but not the third, his executive officer, Obeyer Lieutenant Arasi Conrad Junker. Still, the four men were on the deck as the sub had surfaced and opened its hatch. With each of the four men staring out in a different direction, Captain Deegan believed that any plane could be spotted while it was still six miles away. This would allow the sub enough time to submerge safely. 
After 15 minutes, Deegan decided enough fresh air had been taken in, so he ordered the sub to prepare to dive. The two other crewmen went below, which left Deegan and Junker on deck. The captain had his back to Junker, so he turned around when Junker said, Airplane! Deegan turned, expecting to see a plane in the distance. Instead, it was much closer and coming right at them. Deegan yelled for Junker to get below, and as they slid down the ladder and dove, the captain yelled at Junker, You saw the airplane too late! Before Junker could admit the truth, or try to lie his way out of it, the plane above dropped a bomb. The bomb came from 2nd Lieutenant Harry Kane's plane of the U.S. Army Air Corps 396 Bombardment Group. Harry and his crew of four had been patrolling for the last four hours, and honestly, after four hours of seeing nothing but water, they were beyond bored. Flying at 160 knots, Harry was taking advantage of some low cloud cover by flying in and out of the clouds to help hide his presence. As the plane was flying to the northeast, Harry was looking to his west, that is, in between the trips through the clouds. Even though this sensation probably gave him thrills the first time he experienced it, now it had become routine. Fly into a cloud, come out the other side, be in the open skies for about 30 seconds, and then into another cloud. But during one of the gaps in between the clouds, Harry spotted something about seven miles away to his west. There was no telling what it was, and Harry quickly got the rest of the crew to examine the object. The consensus was to get closer, as it might be an enemy sub. So Harry turned the A-29 Hudson to the west and slowed down to help with the noise of the engines and try to spend more time in the clouds. Getting a bit closer, Harry could see that his object was heading northwest towards Hatteras Island. That got his internal radar going. So, following up with what he had learned from the Army, he got in behind the potential target and started to descend. When he was about five miles away and pretty sure it was a sub, the object began to submerge. That cinched it for Harry. Pushing the throttles forward, his twin 1,200-horsepower right 1820-87 Cyclone engines made a high-pitched sound as the plane's blades started rotating much faster. Now going about 225 miles an hour, Harry knew his crew had precious little time to get ready, so he yelled at the bombardier to prepare the depth charges. When the plane was about 50 feet above the water, the bombardier, Corporal P.L. Broussard, released three depth charges, Mark 17s. As the plane had been able to make an almost perfect approach, the sub having no choice but to stay on course, except for heading down, the three bombs landed where they were supposed to. The first one just behind the rear of the sub, the second just behind the conning tower, and the last just ahead of the conning tower. All three were set to go off after submerging 25 feet. By the time Harry made a turn, it was just in time to see the final bomb explode. He was impressed with the results, but the question remained, was the sub below severely damaged? As impressive as the sight of the bomb going off below the surface had been, it was nothing compared to what happened 
15 seconds later. Though this is rarely seen, and in fact it was the first time an American crew witnessed it, a large dome of air from the sub rushed to the surface of the ocean. And in the midst of that bubble was a man, and he had somehow survived the ordeal below. Right away, Radio Man Corporal L.P. Flowers sent a message. Sub sunk, position 393376. Clearly, this was not a trick on the Germans' part. Meanwhile, within the sub itself, the series of explosions ripped open the hull. U-701 was lost. It was now time to think of survival. Deegan ordered that the ballast tanks be blown, which caused the sub to stop sinking. Now it was hovering around 45 feet below the surface. Deegan knew that this current state would not last, so he ordered abandoned ship. The men started climbing up the conning tower ladder to open the hatch. About 18 men, including the captain, made it out. But this was just the captain's perspective. In reality, 28 men made good their escape, which left 15 others, probably in the aft compartments and thus unable to get to the conning tower in time, trapped inside. As Deegan and his survivors made their way to the surface, they were far from ready for what came next. Amongst them were only three escape lungs, a.k.a. Momsen lung, a device that recycled the breathing gas by using a countering tank containing soda lime to remove the carbon dioxide. They had that and one life preserver. And though they did not know it at the time, with each second, the Germans were being pushed to the northeast, further away from land. Still, saving these men should not have been a cumbersome task. Basically, Harry's plane would report the sinking and the survivors. Next, a ship would be dispatched. Meanwhile, a second plane would come out to take over for the A-29 Hudson, which had been running low on gas. Straightforward, pre-planned, no hassle. But that's not what happened. First, Harry and his crew, as they looked down on the Germans, were happy to have sunk the sub and weren't being completely motivated by humanitarian reasons to save these men, for surely they had valuable information. But the entire process broke down as the plane tried to radio in the latest developments. Radio man Corporal L.P. Flowers tried again and again to reach someone on land to let them know of the survivors, but no one responded, which indicates either the needed improvement in the science behind the radios or an improvement in the process of always having someone nearby the radios at headquarters. So as Harry flew around the men below, Flowers radioed again and again, send help, men in water, send another plane, we are running low on fuel, but only silence greeted him. Finally, after an hour of continued radio messages, and only after Harry's crew dropped their four life vests and their one raft, but for some reasons the Germans did not swim towards these, a message came in. Send details of sighting and attack. Flowers probably wanted to scream, What do you think I've been doing for the last hour? Instead, he tried to comply, but the signal was not getting through. Again. Next, Harry getting frustrated, located a Panamanian freighter and tried to get it to follow him to the survivors. But the ship below stayed on its course, 
probably not wanting to invite trouble. Returning to the last known location, Harry's crew now could not find any of the Germans. It was as if the world had swallowed them up, which here was a distinct possibility. Flowers got back on the radio to call for help. Meanwhile, Harry flew in a search pattern until his fuel demanded that he leave the area at 4.30 p.m. to make for his landing strip at Cunningham Field, located about 90 miles west-southwest of Cape Hatteras. And yet, Captain Deegan and a few others would be found and brought in for questioning. But the Germans knew they should keep their mouths shut just in case they ever made it home and would be found to be traitors. However, it was the Americans who would break the rules while engaging in questions that would come back to haunt them.